and welcome back to Adult Sunday School. Um, in this spring series, we're, we're going to continue on studying uh, church history, I think every spring. And uh, last week, we, we returned to the life and thought of Martin Luther, the 16th century uh, reformer. And we're going to continue on with that, with that series uh, over the next several weeks. But we, we reintroduced Luther last week in order to bring him to the point of real crisis for him personally and also for Luther uh, politically and ecclesiastically. Uh, if you recall our discussion last week, we traced Luther uh, up, up to 1520 and, and through the crucial months of 1520 into 1521. 1520, uh, the Pope sent him a warning of, of excommunication giving Luther 60 days to recant uh, of his beliefs and especially his criticisms uh, of the papacy and of the sale of indulgences. And after Luther received the papal bull, we discussed uh, the little bonfire that he had in Wittenberg, uh, burning both the papal bull and also canon law, which is something like um, burning the, the articles of incorporation or something for a company, burning the legal structure on which the church uh, judicially ruled over the people. Well, of course, Luther didn't recant, and and so the excommunication goes through in the end of 1520. And in 1521, he's brought to an imperial trial uh, attended by the emperor himself, Charles V. And Luther's there found guilty, and so we have Luther sort of left in the lurch. The church has condemned him, and he's a heretic. Uh, The empire has found him guilty criminally for his religious perspectives. And so Luther had every right to think at this point that he would simply be martyred. Uh, There was no precedent for someone walking away from such a trial. Uh, He'd been granted some kind of safe conduct, uh, safe conduct pass. Supposedly, he'd be able to go to the trial and then leave uh, safely. But in every previous case, when someone had been found guilty and been found a heretic, the safe conduct pass had been torn up. The logic was that one need not honor their, their vows or promises to a heretic. And so being found a heretic, the safe passage uh, would have been torn up and, and Luther probably would have been killed right then and there if it wasn't for a German prince, uh, Frederick the Wise, who looked after his kidnapping. So that's where we left things. Uh, last week. And, and we're going to return to Luther in, in, in short order. Uh, but I want to press home, I think, a, an important question that, that arises, uh, and it has to do with, with politics, the relationship of Christianity and politics. How is it that the emperor regards the church's matters as his own affairs? How is it that the, that the emperor goes to this trial and is requested by the papacy to act on uh, this bull of excommunication and find Luther guilty criminally for ecclesiastical religious views? And how is it that the Pope looks to the emperor to exercise the sword of discipline over a heretic? That's the question that that Luther's crisis, um, I think, puts very pointedly. How is it, in other words, that this state of affairs exists this relationship that's, that's sometimes muddied between the church uh, and the state. And to get at that question, we need to go back uh, to the beginning, not quite as back, 
as far as Reverend Brown went back to Genesis. We're just going to go back to early church history. Uh, and so for, for this week, we're going to look a little bit at, at early church history, at the ancient church. Next week, we're going to look at the medieval church, and then we'll be back with Luther. So we've left Luther in the lurch. Uh, we'll come back to him in, in two weeks. But we're going to start in the ancient church. What, what was the relationship between um, church and, and realm or the political sphere, um, the world of politics in the ancient church? Well, it's fairly easy to describe the situation in the early church uh, because there wasn't much of a relationship uh, apart from hostility, right? Um, some of the themes that came home in the sermon today uh, are very much uh, descriptive of, of, the, of the ancient church. Persecution, hostility in the empire towards Christians. And we see that in the Apostle Paul's uh, life. We see that at the close of the apostolic age. Uh, most of the Christian leaders and Christian uh, believers were threatened in some way, shape, or form for their religious beliefs. And so in the ancient church, uh, from, from the close of the apostolic age, right up into the third and fourth century, it's a period of, of, pros, uh, of persecution. Um, it's interesting just to think about the numbers in, in terms of the growth of, of Christianity, and then to think about some of the persecutions that came Christians' way. The church was really pretty small at the close of the apostolic age. Um, the best historians can figure, there were maybe 10,000 Christians in the empire at the end of the first century. So 99 AD, maybe 10,000 Christians. But Christianity grew, it expanded, you know, uh, in the same ways that the book of Acts reports from Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. Um, Christianity ex- uh, really grew and, and almost exploded so that by about the middle of the third century, by about 250 AD, there were approximately two to three million Christians in the empire. That's pretty fast, pretty fast growth in an age when there's no digital media. Um, there's also a, a myth that in the early church, um, the persecution was constant and widespread. Um, it's true that uh, in the first and the, in the early second century, Christians were, were persecuted, but it tended to be pretty sporadic. It, it, persecution of Christians popped up in various parts of the empire temporarily, um, like a hot flame, and then sort of burned out. Um, the first organized, systematic persecution uh, of Christians by the um, by the imperial rulers, by the emperors himself, didn't actually occur until 250 A.D. Um, in, the, in the third century. So 250 A.D., um, the Decian persecution. There's a few others, in case you're interested. Valerian persecution and the Diocletian persecutions. But the Decian in 250 A.D. was the first organized and widespread persecution um, of, of Christians. Um, Decius, the ruler himself, wanted to root out Christians um, and, and, and try to put an end to Christian belief. And he conducted a, well, how would you put it? He, he, he created a loyalty test based on existing religious situation in, in the empire. The loyalty test was to require every inhabitant of the Roman Empire to offer sacrifices 
to the pantheon of Roman gods. And to make sure that there was no fudging, when you offered your sacrifice, you were given an actual certificate uh, of, of, authentic, of authenticity, right? Authenticating the fact that you'd gone to the temple, made the appropriate sacrifice. And if you didn't have the certificate, then you were very likely a Christian. Um, and so you, were, so you were persecuted. And so many of the early Christians um, went to their deaths refusing to offer this sacrifice. That's the first widespread organized persecution of Christians in 250 AD. <coughs> so many um, refused to offer the sacrifices and, and were found out and, and suffered for it. But there was another group of people, those who, well, actually, there were two different groups of people, those who um, offered a sacrifice and abandoned their faith. Those seemed to be a pretty small minority of people. Um, but there were a few who offered sacrifices and then later regretted it and tried to take it back and return to the church. So there's really three groups of people the majority were Christians who were, who were faithful uh, to Christ the King, who, offered, who refused to offer sacrifices and suffered for it. There were a few who simply abandoned the faith altogether. And then there was this group of people who offered sacrifices and then took it back and had to return to the church. And if you look at early church writings, the, the, the problem of how, what to do with this third group of people was a major pastoral problem. Um, for the early church. A lot of letters went back and forth from church leaders. Do we simply let them return on the, on the basis of their oral confession that they made sacrifices and then regretted it? Do we make them do, um, you know, do we put them in, a, in kind of in limbo for a while before uh, receiving them back into the church? Um, do we ban them from the Lord's Supper but let them attend worship? Uh, what do we do? This was a, a major pastoral problem. Um, and it wasn't ever fully settled uh, in the early church of what precisely to do with these Christians. Um, it occurs to me now, just thinking about it, and this is a pastoral problem for the church really in all ages, especially when it undergoes um, persecution. Um, at the time of the Reformation, uh, in, the, in the 16th century, wherever Roman Catholics persecuted Protestants, Protestant pastors had to deal with this problem. There were Christians, those in their congregation, who were faithful and loyal to Christ and were persecuted. But then there were those who, who wavered, who maybe would go back to Roman Catholic Mass while also claiming still to be Protestants. Um, you know, we could even look at an example of this. Uh, if you open up the back of your soldier hymnals to, uh, to the Belgic Confession, <coughs> The Belgian Confession comes after the Heidelberg and after the Canons of Dort. It must be around page 70 or 80 in here. And you look at Article 28 of the Belgic Confession. You can see the church responding to this, to this kind of crisis. So... In the, in the Spanish-controlled highlands, in, in the Netherlands, um, where the Belgian Confession was, was written, um, the Spanish-controlled uh, Netherlands was staunchly Roman Catholic. I think I remember, recall uh, mentioned last week 
Charles V, the sort of inbred Habsburg emperor um, who gave up the ghost and, and turned power over to his son and to his brother. Well, his son was Philip II, who was a Spanish, Spanish Habsburg, and he ruled over the Netherlands in the 16th century. And he had a very strong sense of Roman Catholic identity, such that he wanted to, to, to put under the sword the growth of the, uh, the Protestant movement. And so they were uh, persecuting Christians uh, up and down in the Netherlands. And so when we come to the Belgian Confession, we find uh, the author, Guy de Bray, dealing with the question of, should, are Christians obligated to join the church even when they're being persecuted? And they say, um, pretty unequivocally, in Article 28, particularly the... the uh, I have to find Article 28 first. What page is it on here? 83, page 83. Particularly in the, in the, in the second column. Um, and this may be the more effective, uh, effectually observed. It is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate themselves from those who don't belong to the church and to join themselves to this congregation wheresoever God has established it even though the magistrates and the edicts of princes were against it, yea, though they should suffer death or any other corporal punishment. Therefore, all those who separate themselves from the same or do not join themselves to it act contrary to the ordinance of God. In other words, even in times of persecution, one must uh, join the church, one must be faithful um, to Christ as their Lord. This is, this is, we're getting off track back into the 16th century, and I wanted to talk about the early church, but... Um, it's, a, it's an interesting um, pastoral problem. It's the problem of the Nicodemites. If you ever read Calvin in the Institutes, he'll sometimes talk about the, the Nicodemites. And what he's referring to by the Nicodemites are those who have come to faith, have professed um, faith in Christ, have joined a Reformed church, but then under persecution from Rome... <laughs> Have, have wavered, have sometimes been, been accused of being closet Reformed Christians. And the Nicodemites, they get their name from, from John chapter 3, when Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and what, is, what does he do? He's, he, he comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness, right? Because he's, um, he's, he's concerned about his well-being. He wants it to be a secret, the fact that he's asking Jesus questions, and then he kind of goes back to his old ways. Um, so the problem of the Nicodemites are the problem of those who, who give in to persecution and, and waver. And, 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 and Calvin says on the strength of uh, a, a confession to the consistory uh, of wrongdoing, they should be welcomed back into the, into the community. In any case, back to the 16th century, the problem of the Nicodemites is, is an ongoing one. Um, and it's certainly one in 250 A.D. under the decent persecution. Um, a lot of church fathers um, died in the persecution uh, in 250 A.D. and after that. And a couple of interesting things happen as a result of, of the decent persecution. One is that church fathers, uh, bishops of local churches increasingly... Uh, exercise authority. They have organizational importance. Sort of like when a, 
when a military squad goes into battle under fire, leadership matters so much more than many other things. And under the decent persecution, bishops, especially bishops of important cities, begin to rise more and more in importance as they're organizing uh, the beleaguered groups of Christians. Um, That's one thing that happens. Just tuck that away and and we'll we'll return to that um, in a minute. But theologically, the early church suffering persecution can only conceive of the relationship between the church and the political sphere as one of hostility. And so uh, there's an early church document called the Didache. That's a D. The Didache. It's a really... It's a really ugly D, but means the teaching that describes the relationship between the church and the political realm um, as, as, as two hostile cities or kingdoms. Emphasis on hostile. And I couldn't imagine any other kind of relationship between the church and the empire that wasn't one of hostility in the time of persecution. Uh, and that's very much uh, the, the, the political theology of the, of the early church. Well, how does it all um, come to an end, the persecution of Christians? Does anyone know? There's one name, especially, who's associated with the ending of persecution of Christianity. Constantine. And so, we can talk about Constantine as a revolutionary figure. <coughs> Constantine um, was the son of a soldier and a minor political leader and ruler in the Holy Roman Empire. And Constantine was himself a soldier, um, a a battle-hardened veteran uh, of many military campaigns. He came um, (coughs) to rule over a pretty significant portion of the Holy Roman Empire, but he wanted more. He wanted to consolidate the empire and to assert his supremacy as the single emperor over, uh, for all practical purposes, was a, um, an empire broken up under several different uh, smaller rulers, the Tetrarchy, it's called. Well, Constantine wanted the whole empire all to himself, and so he began to march on Rome with his rather large army, in order to um, put the other Roman rulers in their place and to assert his authority. Well, the night before the battle, Constantine had a vision. There's actually two conflicting versions of the vision that he had. We're not entirely sure what he saw. He saw something. We don't know exactly what. Uh, One version of of the vision is that Constantine saw the sun god Apollo up in the sky surrounded by... Um, beams of light. But Constantine, at this point, was interested in Christianity. He was maybe what you'd call a seeker. And rather than interpreting the sun god Apollo uh, in, in, in the way you might imagine, as a pagan god, he gave this a Christian spin um, based on an Old Testament passage that talks about the sun of righteousness. Uh, It's a Christmas carol where we sing about the Son of Righteousness. And so he saw the Son of Righteousness that he interpreted as a Christ figure in the sky, and that gave him hope for for this battle that he was about to 
commence the next morning. That's one version of the vision. Another version of the vision is up in the sky, the night before the battle, Constantine saw uh, an X and a row. That's a chi in Greek, uh, the Greek letter X, and, and with a line through it and an R, that's a row in Greek. That he saw that symbol in the sky. And a voice told him, under this sign you will conquer. It's a pretty hopeful thing to hear the night before a battle. And so Constantine had all of his soldiers paint this on their shields. And then the next morning, uh, October 28th of 312, they went into battle and, and were victorious over the other Roman rulers of the day. The, the X and the R, the chi and the rho, are the first letters in Greek for Christos, Christ. Under this, under this sign, you will conquer. So it's a Christian symbol that he had all of his soldiers paint on their shields. And in 312, the Battle of Milvian Bridge, if you're interested in military history, um, Constantine completely dominates the Romans and secures victory for himself. Um, the next year in 313, we'll mention this because we have some connections to Milan, do we not? The Edict of Milan in 313, uh, a letter from the emperor um, with some of his other sub-rulers granting religious freedom, not just to Christians, but to all in the empire. But that's the first time since 250 when the organized systematic persecution of Christians was ended. 313, Edict of Milan, one year after Constantine secured victory by painting this religious symbol um, on, his, uh, on his shield. It's interesting. As soon as uh, Constantine won uh, the battle in Milvian Bridge, when he went into Rome as the victorious emperor, he didn't do something that all previous Roman emperors would have done. He didn't go and offer pagan sacrifices to the gods. Instead, he began building a Christian church in Rome. And if Constantine's known for lots of different things, one of them is certainly for building, building big and significant churches. So 312, um, Constantine secures victory over the empire. The next year, he grants religious freedom to Christians, ends the persecution of Christians. He begins building churches uh, all over the empire, uh, including moving the capital of the empire to a new city, uh, Constantinople, which he cleverly names after himself, um, Byzantium. Um, and, and in fact, it's his son that builds one of the most famous churches probably in all of church history, the Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom. It's Constantine's son um, who, who, who finishes construction on, on that in Constantinople. He calls Constantinople the New Rome and rules there um, over, over a united and consolidated um, empire. Okay, I, I was thinking this morning about four effects or implications of Constantine's um, victory and his rule. And I'll try to <coughs> give them to you quickly here. The first result of Constantine's victory and conversion 
um, is, is the birth of what we call Christendom. Um, so Constantine brings in the early church, two hostile cities. Constantine brings in what we call uh, Christendom, which is a kind of loosely theocratic uh, rule where all of the rules and laws in the empire, uh, many now begin to take on Christian flavor, um, a Christian aspect to them. Constantine eventually uh, and his successors will rule out pagan sacrifices. In fact, they'll begin to dismantle eventually um, pagan temples. So that's a law now of the empire that's offered up um, with some kind of Christian or theological justification. So Christendom is a kind of loose, loosely theocratic rule, somewhat like David's rule over, over Israel. And the emperor, um, of course, is at, at the center of it. Um, another implication uh, of or result of Constantine's rule and the birth of Christendom is that the church will go from having been persecuted to increasingly becoming uh, more powerful and more financially successful. So the bishops of the various cities at once were persecuted, but now they're the ones that Constantine the emperor looks to for help in administering uh, rule over the empire. So bishops increasingly become civic and political figures, not just religious figures. And that makes sense in Christendom, in a, in a loosely theocratic uh, approach to, to politics. A third um, and an, an important result, especially of Constantine's having established a new Rome in Constantinople, now we'll start to see in Christendom uh, tensions between Rome and Constantinople. Maybe a, a more indelicate way of putting it, Rome, the old Rome, not the new Rome, will increasingly have a kind of inferiority complex. And this is pretty important for understanding the rise of the papacy. How does the Pope in Rome become so important in Christianity um, through the, through the uh, late uh, and early medieval period? Well, it's because the emperor is now in Constantinople, and arguably the most important bishop in Christendom is in Constantinople as well. Well, what about the former capital of the empire? There's a kind of inferiority complex. And the popes in Rome, uh, from, from then on, will always want to try to claim more power back for themselves and argue against um, the rule from the east, as they started to refer to it. We'll come back to that in, in just a moment. A fourth um, important result, the possibility of real tensions arise between the emperor, Constantine, and his bishops. At first, there's just the possibility of tension. Uh, eventually, there will be sort of an all-out war. Um, who has the final say-so? Who has the final authority? The emperor or the bishop? 
who grants authority to whom, right? I mean, you have Romans 13, God seems to grant um, authority to, to emperors and rulers sort of directly. But the church figures are very quick to argue, especially the bishops in Rome. Well, Matthew 16, Jesus gave authority to the Pope. And so then maybe the Pope in Rome, as Peter's successors, maybe they delegate authority to the emperor. So maybe the emperor doesn't have his authority directly from God. Maybe he has it in a delegated fashion um, from, from, from the, uh, the bishop in Rome. Well, these are questions that, that people begin to ask. Constantine says, look, I had the vision, okay? I marked the shields. I won. I granted religious freedom. I established a new city of Rome in Constantinople. I'm in charge. And I'm happy to delegate and share some of my authority with bishops, but, but don't, don't be confused. The emperor's in charge. Well, there, there becomes to be a big problem. Who's in charge? Um, and, and who gives and grants authority and who has the power to, to take it back again? An interesting example occurs in the early church when there's a real theological controversy over the Trinity and the person of Christ. If you remember... A couple of months ago, Reverend Brown did his series on, on the, the person and work of Christ and Christology. We talked a little bit about the Arian controversy. Well, the Arian controversy was playing out right at the time when Constantine comes to power. In fact, when Constantine comes to power after the Battle of Milvian Bridge, after the Edict of Milan, he says, okay, I'm a Christian. We're a Christian empire now. This is going to be great. And then he looked at the church, and it turns out the church was arguing about the Trinity and about the person of Christ, particularly the deity of Christ. Well, the Christian, uh, the, the emperor's, uh, well, the emperor basically intruded himself into church politics. A bishops, a group of bishops had called a council to deal with the Arian crisis, and and. Constantine inserts himself uh, into the controversy and moves the location of the, of the synod, of the council, to Nicaea. So there had been a council planned by the bishops, but it, I'm not even sure where it was planned. Constantine is the one who moves the council to, to Nicaea in 325 and makes pretty clear that he's the one in charge of the council. I mean, everyone travels there on, on Constantine's dime, right? He pays for the food, the lodging, um, everything. He uh, seats himself at the front uh, of, the, of the building where they meet, um, and he's the one who puts his sort of royal stamp of approval on the decisions. So there you have an example of, of an emperor entering right into church politics. Well, why? Because in a theocracy, um, the church's state of affairs are the emperor's state of affairs. If the church has an issue or a problem or a concern, it's the emperor's problem or concern. And, and that's what we see um, in, in 325 in, in Nicaea. Well, church history goes on and, and most Christians came to be satisfied and even happy with Christendom as a state of affairs 
in the empire. There's one, one man in particular, I hesitate to mention him because he was a church historian, and I shouldn't beat up on other church historians, but Eusebius um, is sometimes named as the first church historian um, of the Christian church. And Eusebius actually went to Nicaea and met Constantine and, and forever after sucked up to, to Constantine and be kind, of, kind of became his little pocket theologian, um, so to speak. Uh, Eusebius wrote, a, he wrote the first church history that we have, which covers from the time of Christ up until um, about 320, um, about 320 AD, just about five years before the Nicene crisis. Um, among other things that Eusebius wrote, it's a very, very entertaining uh, martyrology, a history of the early Christian martyrs during the time of, of persecution. Um, it makes for, for colorful reading. Um, one, he gives us accounts of, of, of the martyrdoms, but the more, the more outrageous sections of the martyrology are actually Eusebius's descriptions of what happens to the emperors who, who persecuted the Christians. So he treats the, the, the martyrs in pretty, pretty quickly, and then he moves on to talk about the emperors. And it turns out, according to Eusebius' account, all of the emperors who persecuted Christians died horrendous, miserable deaths. A lot of this is obviously not true. It's apocryphal. You could question whether or not Eusebius is really a historian in this sense. But the, the point of it all was... Um, Evildoers will get their just reward in the end. Emperors who persecute Christians will have fevers so hot that their eyeballs fall out of their heads. That's one scene. You know, I mean, their, their insides are in turmoil. Um, they become just despicable. And he really relishes every gruesome medical detail. That's what happens to Christian emperors who persecute um, Christians. Um, or, or Roman emperors who persecute Christians. Well, that's the martyrology. Um, what does Eusebius do? Why does he stop his church history in 320? Well, you might say he stopped his church history because he more or less caught up with contemporary time. Um, that's, that's possible. But he really stopped his church history because Constantine enters the scene. Constantine is, is, is Eusebius' hero because he delivers the church from persecution. And in Eusebius we find the theology of Christendom, which is not the theology of the early church of two hostile cities. Eusebius's uh, political theology of Christendom sees a merging of the church and the empire. Um, Constantine is cast as a Christ figure who redeems the church and sort of inaugurates the eschaton. The kingdom of God comes in Constantine and begins then to slowly grow until one day Christ will return to consummate the kingdom. But Constantine looms pretty large as a hero. So you find not two hostile cities, um, but you find, a, 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 from our perspective, what would be a, a complete conflation of the two cities. There's really no distinction between the empire and the church. It's a Holy Roman Empire. Um, that's what we find um, in Constantine, uh, in Christendom, especially because of the work of, of, of Eusebius. Are there any questions about that? Um,
just for a second so I can drink some water and before we keep rushing on. Yeah. Well, that's a funny question. Um, people like to say that Eusebius was a better scholar than he was historian. And what they mean by that is that a lot of what, a lot of Eusebius's history is fabricated, especially the parts that have to do with Constantine. Um, but it's also the case that Eusebius um, scrupulously provided his sources for information. So he introduces a way for us to fact-check fact check his own story and find out a lot of it is a little sketchy, a little shady. So maybe not such a great historian, but a good scholar who, who gave us all of the information that later um, authors and scholars might use to, in fact, undermine his story. I think he did that um, unconsciously. Um, but he's trying to document how Christianity could grow from this sort of despised heretical sect within the empire to, um, to being the new religion of the empire. It's one of, it's one of Constantine's um, successors, by the way, Theodosius. Is the emperor who, um, who makes Christianity the official religion of the empire. Well, that's one further step. Constantine allowed all religions and then slowly began to uh, favor Christianity within the realm. One of his successors, Theodosius, uh, makes Christianity the official re religion then of the of the Roman Empire. <coughs> yep. Well. There's a lot of truth in that. Um, I mean, in many respects, I think I mentioned this way back when we looked at, at Luther's early life um, last year, a lot of the saints that we get in Christianity um, are simply pagan gods sort of given Christian names. So there's a, a very syncretistic approach um, in the empire because not everyone is a Christian. And so those who suddenly have Christian religion forced on them as the official empire, there are no other options, simply re-describe their existing pagan beliefs, give them a kind of Christian flavor, and carry on. I mean, that's one of the ironies of, of Christendom. It's meant to be a theocratic rule, uh, and in, in the end, what you find is usually a pretty syncretistic um, situation. That's a good question. You know, it seems to be the case um, that Constantine was, uh, had good intentions. I don't think he inserted himself in church affairs in Nicaea, for instance, for his, own, for his own good. It's true that he did want religious sort of peace. He wanted a religious settlement of these theological debates in, in the empire. But he seems to have had a genuine interest in, in the person of Christ and in trying to get to the, 
to the bottom of things. So it's pretty hard to judge um, Constantine's heart from, from all this time later in, in history. Well, next week, I think, are we ending now? Yes. yes. Next week, um, we're going to talk about uh, a major threat to Christendom um, in the person of Alaric I, um, a Visigoth leader. Um, the Holy Roman Empire from, from 320s on only grows in power and in wealth and the church along with it until uh, the early 5th century in, in 410, an army of Goths, and I don't mean teenagers with, you know, black trench coats, uh, an army of Goths, actual Goths, Visigoths, under Alaric I, marched, marches on Rome and sacks and destroys the city. And at that time, Augustine offers another political theology that's much more of a return to the early church's understanding of two hostile cities. Christendom, in other words, is threatened. And at the time of Christendom being threatened by the Goths in 410, uh, Augustine returns to, to the early church's understanding of a hostility between the two, the two cities. So we have to end there. Um, I'll be up here after, after questions if we have any. Um, let's end in prayer. <coughs> Gracious Father, you uh, rule over all things with wisdom uh, and with power, with might and with glory. You are a holy God, and yet even in your holiness and in your power, you are merciful towards your people. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, our our elder brother, our mediator, our intercessor, uh, who became man and dwelt with us um, in the flesh. We thank you that you have called yourself uh, a people, from all times in the past and and up until Christ's return, that you um, care for your people and that you deal with us uh, with grace uh, and in love and with mercy. Help us to be uh, steadfast and devoted in our faith uh, this week. Help us to fight the good fight uh, of faith, serving in the strength that you supply. Give us a day of rest, we pray. Return us to evening worship, ready to magnify and glorify your name uh, and be fed again from your word. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.